Equity is brought to you by ExaCrunch, that prodigious TechCrunch paywall you keep running into. You can break through that paywall at a steep discount if you use the promo code equity. If you do, you'll get access to our best stuff and you'll make equity look really good internally at the same time. Enough of that, let's start the show. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I am joined today, as always, by my two besties. I have Natasha Mascarenas here. Natasha, how is life? Alex, besties is actually a Gen Z phrase that is coming back. So snaps to you for being hashtag relevant. Yeah, three generations early. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. Can Gen Z bring something back that didn't go away? Because I've been saying besties forever. Uh, and another person who's also ancient like myself is Danny Crichton. Danny, you're here. How are you, bestie? Uh, I'm doing well. I don't have besties. My besties are like bottles of various liqueurs. Yeah, I tried that for a long time. And then I had to flip from bottles to humans because it wasn't working out so well. But I will say this before we jump into the show, and we have a lot, and I will tell you all about what's going to happen in a second. It turns out today I learned a very important fact, which is that technically, according to <laughs> the TechCrunch org chart, I work for Danny. What? And for for like <laughs> years now, I've been flaming him on the show, and I think it's why my bonus wasn't bigger. Danny, <laughs> Danny, did you know this? Did you know that Alex is a direct report? Well, he's an indirect report. He he's actually like multiple layers down the org chart in the very weird way we've organized tech. So it's worse. It's worse. If I was a direct report of Danny, it would imply that I was more senior. However, it turns out I am down with the kitchen supplies and bags of fertilizer in the basement of the TechCrunch org. <laughs> but let's put that aside. We have an enormous amount of stuff to get through today. All of it fascinating and exciting. We're going to kick off with a little bit of news about the history of venture capital and a death in that space, sadly to say. Then we're going to talk about Twitter, Scroll, Nuzzle, the future of subscription content and the startup world involving newsletters. Then we have Epic buying ArtStation. We're going to talk a little bit about what a fair cut of a digital marketplace really is and why Apple is wrong. Then we have Sony tying up with Discord after the Microsoft Discord deal fell apart. Then we're going to pivot to EdTech. Natasha's going to talk us through the Kahoot Clever deal and what all these EdTech unicorns are doing with their massive amounts of loot. Finally, Uber and Arrival are partnering up, funding rounds from A-Life Health Workboard, and then finally, a little bit from Lita Health. It's going to be a packed show, ladies and gentlemen, but we're going to start with the bad news. Danny, who is David Swinson and why does his death impact the show? Yes, so as we're going to recording on this Thursday, we learned that David Swenson, the longtime head of Yale's endowment, passed away from cancer at the age of 67. Swenson pioneered for endowments the alternative investment approach of investing outside of stocks and bonds to hedge funds and private equity and venture capital, obviously. That really revolutionized basically asset management uh, across the world. It invented the modern endowment that really built up the universities you know. Stanford, Harvard, Princeton all sort of used this to really buttress their financial powers over the last couple of decades. And, and his loss is a huge tragedy, I think, for the entire industry. I was just going to add one number to Yale's endowment to give listeners perspective. My friend Tanae Jaburia just tweeted out a graph showing Swenson's impact on Yale's endowment and says that he grew the endowment from $1 billion in 1985 to over $30 billion and created $8 billion in value through its performance alone. So this guy had a huge, huge impact from a financial perspective. And as Danny mentioned, just culture and how we think about venture capital. I know back in the day, you had to actually do work to make that kind of return. These days you buy Dogecoin. <laughs> All right, let's move on into the start of the show. So for everyone who was not paying attention, let us help you out. So Twitter is buying 
Scroll. And Scroll was a service that was designed to let you pay in a small amount of money that would then give you a better reading experience across the internet on partner websites. And then it would cut up the money and divvy it out to those websites. I actually founded a company back in the day that tried to do this about 12, 13 years ago. It failed masterfully. So here's the scroll for not only pulling it off, but selling to Twitter. But implicit into this news story is some bad stuff, which is that Nuzzle is shutting down. And I was not a Nuzzle user. However, Danny and Natasha, you guys both were. So Natasha, why was Nuzzle important? And why is it shuddering sad? Nuzzle was important to me, I'll speak for myself, because it was this interesting news aggregator that showed you what your followers on Twitter were reading, liking, commenting, and retweeting on. I actually found out about it through Aaron Griffith, no. like what, what I use in a day tech-wise. And I feel like when a journalist uses a startup, it's it means something to me. <laughs> so, so that's what made me download Nuzzle. But even now, I mean, until now, Nuzzle was a good way to use Twitter without using Twitter. Danny, what did you think about it? How did you use it? Well, that's exactly that's exactly how it works. To me, it was about getting the value out of Twitter, which is really, really hard. Because there's someone like me who doesn't use Twitter or attempts to use it, but very badly. Nuzzle was actually like my daily first step. It was like, okay, here are the top 10 stories that like TechCrunch staffers shared in the last, you know, 12 hours. And I could catch up really, really fast. But now it's dead. And my top, literally the top eight app on my phone, gone. So that's the bad news. The good news, though, is Twitter's push into subscriptions is starting to sound kind of cool. I hate to be positive about a, a big tech company, but like Twitter bought Review and is building out newsletters. And I'm starting to see people who have left other publications launch Twitter newsletters as opposed to Substacks. Very interesting. Twitter Spaces is giving Clubhouse a run for its money and works on Android, if I recall correctly. And now we're seeing Twitter by Scroll, which gives it a subscription product and a way to improve reading on the web and put money into publishers' pockets. I don't hate that. At the cost of Nuzzle. Guys, is the Nuzzle death going to be as, as whined about as the end of Google Reader? Or is this going to be a smaller <laughs> pity party that I have to endure? It's going to be a smaller pity party. What I okay. think is interesting, I mean, first of all, Twitter should buy Threadreader because if it's going to do blogging, it might as well already buy the software that does blogging on Twitter. Yes. But I do think what's interesting, I mean, I'm actually really positive here. It seems like Twitter has a fire up its behind or bum or whatever the appropriate word we can <laughs> use on this podcast word. is. <laughs> Because to me, like, you know, Twitter has been like a morass of like bad ideas for years. And yet in the last year between review, a bunch of other acquisitions, some talent acquisitions, yeah. it really seems that Twitter is actually building a future in which it's in control of that product. You know, it, it so much has happened to Twitter. And for the first time, I feel like it's turned around and it's like, here's a vision of what we want Twitter to become that is our own, that we own, and then we have a strategy to get there. So I'm actually really excited to see where this all goes. Selfishly, not even with my reporter hat on, selfishly, I would love, and I would honestly pay for a way to have Twitter be more useful to me. Because right now, even though I only follow like 2,000, 3,000 people. Oh my God. It's way too much for me. I follow 3,000 people and it's not enough. I'm still finding awesome people on Twitter. That's the yeah. problem with Twitter. There's just too many cool people. Like on other social platforms, I, I want to, like on Clubhouse, I follow like three of my friends. Right <laughs> on Twitter, there's like eighty thousand people I would love to follow. I actually got to talk to the Twitter TweetDeck team. Your favorite product? Oh, there's another abandonware product, but no more, no more an abandonware product. Now they're putting some some resources behind it, and I, I just gotta say that was a call I've been waiting for for five or ten years. <laughs> I know. I was gonna say, Alex, that was probably one of the first things I knew about you, other than you liked donuts, was your long tweet deck. When I joined TechCrunch 27 years ago and ran into Alex, um, <laughs> I remember you having the massive single monitor dedicated to your like 20 columns of tweet deck. 
Nothing has changed. Nothing yeah. has it's, changed. It's the way to live. Twitter is fantastic. And I think we're all excited that they have, quote, as Danny said, a fire up their bum, which is a <laughs> word we've never said on the show before. All right. <laughs> let's talk about gaming acquisitions. A couple of things here. One, we're not going to talk a lot about the Epic Apple thing. It's a little bit outside of our purview. And frankly, it's so complex. It would take the entire show to go through the nuance of discovery and so forth. But we do want to talk about the general space a little bit in a way through the acquisition that Epic Games just pulled off of ArtStation. Danny, the deal happened and then Epic made a decision that that is pretty important about how ArtStation does business. Can you walk us through both? Yeah, so ArtStation is an artist portfolio community that basically allows creators to you know set up a, a profile of all their different work that they do. So it particularly targets folks in the gaming, media, entertainment space. This is obviously highly relevant to Epic Games. The key thing is that they actually lowered the commission rate on their platform from 30% to 12%, which is obviously directly related to the Apple Epic debate going on in the court right now. To me, like, this is really exciting because it's not only, you know, we've seen this in, in sort of the equity side of the world, you know, on the cap tables, cap tables are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. But now we're seeing this on the in-app purchase side of the equation. We're going almost a third of what it used to be. A third is a shockingly huge decline. I mean, 18% out of 30% is massive. But Natasha, you know, we've also seen Microsoft make a similar reduction. This seems to be almost like the other argument point that 30% is not right, 12% is. Is it a race to the bottom, though? Like, is someone going to come out with 9% and this happens all over again? Or does this stay at this level? That's how it's supposed to work. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's good for it's, us or good for gaming companies. Like, Steam is no longer the only place to buy games. The Epic Store is competing with it. The Microsoft Store is competing with it. We're seeing the Xbox Store, the PlayStation Store. I mean, like, like there's a number of places where you buy digital games or digital items for games. And 30% was always a bit onerous. And I think what we're seeing here is, you know, as games get become more cross-platform, as gamers become more platform flexible, essentially these monopolies can't hold the same candle to other people's uh, palms as they try to extort revenue from them. I think that's exactly right. And look, I, I think there's going to be a secular decline across all marketplaces on take rates. I mean, when you first got started, say what you will, but the 30% app store policy made sense in a world in which like, it was really hard to have online services. It was really hard to build a store. Today, it's easy. You can take stuff off the shelf. There's 10 different options. It's inevitable that that competition is just going to keep pushing rates lower and lower and lower, whether it's apps, whether it's creators, whether it's art, whether it's e-com. We're seeing this across the board. So I actually expect, I mean, 12 is the new 30, but I think four is going to be the new 12 within the next five years. Yeah. And uh, we will turn that discussion into a post for TechCrunch.com, I just decided. All right. Uh, <laughs> this all this all matters because it's not the only acquisition we've seen in kind of the gaming space or the kind of gaming deal, if you will. Do you guys recall when Microsoft almost bought Discord for like 10 or $12 billion and then everyone realized that was too little and then the deal fell apart? Like a week ago. Yeah. Well, Sony <laughs> noticed and they said, well, we'll just put some money into the business and then partner up with you. Here's what's going on. Sony and Discord have announced a partnership that's going to bring Discord's popular gaming-focused chat service into PlayStation's built-in tools. And as a PS4 owner and a gamer and a Discord user on PC, I'm very curious about this because it seems, Danny, like they're building almost like the voice iMessage for gaming, like something that's cross-platform and plugs in wherever you go. But I'm surprised to see Sony seed some of its kind of like customer-facing-ness to Discord in this way. I think what's interesting is, you know, in, in the modern unity game engine and Fortnite world you know games run on everything right and so if you are on playstation chat you know how does that work in a world in which most of your teammates are probably on a different platform to me discord is now that glue layer for communications on top of all that so it doesn't matter if you're on switch on on xbox you're on pc you can talk to everyone live in a, a native interface and it is becoming the standard like this has to be integrated otherwise it doesn't make any sense you know this is why i would not be shocked if we saw microsoft roll up with a big check and just buy similar access to this. You know, it reminds me a little bit of Reliance Geo in India. 
I mean, everyone realized this was going to become the de facto platform for that country's digital world. And if that's the case, uh, Natasha is raising her hand. Oh, no, I was pushing money toward it. That's like oh. all that month of this reliance raising from every single U.S. giant <laughs> company. And I was just like, all right. <laughs> Danny, do you think anyone could take on Discord? Or do you think Discord has essentially won this space for uh, the next 10 years? I think it's actually really interesting because Discord has argued in my own communications with them that they're not just gaming anymore. Like they're trying to expand to a variety of different verticals. They're trying to be like popular chat for everyone, not just gaming. And the reality is, is like, this is going to be the core strategy for the company, I think, long term. They're going to be the sole social layer to every gaming platform. They're going to be universal. And because they're going to have that universality, they're going to have this network effect. They're going to be locked in. They're going to be the sole defining place. You know, if you compare that to Slack, we were joking this week when we got acquired whether we would have to move from Slack to Microsoft Teams. And, you know, most of us said we would turn in our resignations if we ever moved to Microsoft Teams. But nonetheless, if you move from one company to the next, you can move from Slack to Teams. Who cares? There's no network effect other than inside the company. Here, everyone has to be on the same platform, and it looks like they're going to become the WhatsApp of gaming, you know, permanently long term. WhatsApp of gaming is much better than what I said, which was iMessage of gaming, which is, of course, locked to a single platform. Thank you for the correction there, Danny. Let's move on, though, to the ed tech world. Natasha, and I mean this politely, there's some really interesting stuff going on in ed tech right now, which is a change from my general view of the space. But the Kahoot Clever deal is legitimately fascinating. So can you tell us, one, why we care, and two, why the dollar amount matters? Yes. Ingrid, for us, covered Kahoot, an Oslo-based edtech company that does a lot of edtech gamification, especially serving parents and teachers for kids. And they acquired Clever, which is a startup that I'll just quote directly, has built a single sign-on portal for educators, students, and their families to build and engage with digital classrooms. It acquired it for between $435 million and $500 million. And it's one of those 2012 ed tech companies that a lot of them have actually been going public. So this exit, I don't know if it's good or bad, but it's one of those companies that was like an OG finally seeing some kind of exit. Clever's power is always to be the, the plaid of ed tech. So, you know, you go in the high schools, it was meant to be this API layer. You didn't have to integrate with hundreds of different course management systems and learning management systems. You could just, you, you know, build on top of Clever. It was an app store. I think what's nuts here is first, it was successful. And not only did it sell for no money, you look at the revenues, 44 million build in 2021, which is 25% cager over, you know, the last three years, 25% growth when you have market penetration. This is like the big question to me in ed tech is like, this was a successful company. This did what it promised to do. It was revolutionary. It was good. And yet what the hell happened? I want to bring up used instruments in, in guitars to make a point about what Denny just said. Why can you always go and get a reasonable guitar for like 200 bucks? It's because musicians don't have any money. So there has to be kind of this like reasonable option at a price point that makes sense. And I think that when you're selling to schools, you know, 65% of K-12 schools use Clever, they don't have any money famously. I mean, like even when I was a student in the American public school system, like we never had enough paper to print on. Like it was hilarious things like that. Like welcome to the richest country in the world, by the way. <laughs> and so I'm not surprised that even though they won Danny, they did not end up generating a revenue base that would give them a higher exit. But to be clear though, their possible strategic value to Kahoot, a European company wanting to possibly break in more to the US market, seems to be quite large. And so the deal makes sense, even if the dollar amount is disappointing. But Natasha, I, I agree with Danny to be clear, but like in, in the edtech world, was this viewed as a kind of a letdown in terms of price? I can't tell if it was. I mean, I think to Danny, your point, we're seeing more and more the argument that in order to be a venture backed edtech company, at least, you have to be more in the supplemental space if you're going to be in K through 12, similar to an out school that has, you know, founded just years ago and has done, I think, a double the revenue. They are more in like the after school classes for kids space. 
But I do want to compare Clever to Class Dojo because they are similar in trying to create a virtual space for schools. They made their platform fully free for seven years for schools, and it's still free to create a class dojo for your classroom. The way they eventually monetized and became profitable even was through a supplemental service to help parents round out the educational day. So we saw a company doing something really similar to Clever, actually succeeding, going a different route. I think Clever may be charging for its core service and not keeping it free could be why we're seeing such slow revenue growth. Yeah. And there is a lot of revenue to be had in the edtech space. I mean, so we have Kahoot's latest earnings from Q1 and their ARR went up to 69 million, which is up from 18 million in Q1 2020. So an insane amount of growth there. And uh, their actual revenue for the quarter was 16.2 million, growing about 284% year over year. So like there is money to be made. It just seems that whatever Clever picked was not the most clever way to go about scaling its top line. All right, <laughs> Natasha, give us 30 seconds on Jamira's new EdTech role. She's a friend of the show. Yes, Jamira Herrera, who was on during our EdTech deep dive last year. She is leaving Cowboy VC and joining actually the first EdTech firm I ever talked to, not to make it about me, Reach Capital. I love Reach Capital. They are a woman-led venture capital firm, probably one of the most diverse ones to date, and have had about 1 million in total exits of their portfolio companies this year alone. 1 billion is not in their pocket, but their companies in aggregate have exited for 1 billion. And they recently raised a third fund in February. So Jamira is joining up with some of my favorites. I'm super excited. And it's their first outside partner hire. So big confidence in her there. Deserved confidence. And that third fund, 165 million, is worth about half of the total amount they've raised across three funds. So we can see a rising amount of, uh, of capital per fund. So shout out to Myra. One time she actually came on what we called uh, equity on Extra Crunch back in the day. We were in San Francisco. She came to the office and didn't know that we were going to be on, doing a video shoot. So we still oh, feel bad horrible, that we actually put her on camera without telling her. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God oh. we don't do video here. Oh my God. Anyways, Danny, let's talk about Uber and Arrival and electric vehicles. You know, here's my question. Are electric vehicles the new like autonomous vehicles? I feel like these two categories have been promised to us for wide deployment for so long, and they're still just not that popular. Is this finally the EV moment, Danny? Is this the year of Linux on the desktop? Well, I mean, there's so many different platforms, right? And and not just platforms, but re-envisioning what a car means. You know, I, I was just walking around New York City yesterday. For the first time I saw Lime bikes. I don't know if they've been around for years. Revel's been around a long time. But like, there are now Lime bikes everywhere. So, you know, those are EVs, right? Not the EVs in terms of cars, but an EV in terms of an electric vehicle that moves me from point A to point B. And I think what Rival and all these others are getting into is like, how do we design custom vehicles for different use cases. That's where this Uber and Arrival partnership comes into play. They're building a unique car designed specifically for the Uber context of a driver with passengers in the back seat. To me, like this is the future of Uber is, you know, you're at scale. There are a lot of folks working now full-time given all the gig worker law changes. And so it just makes sense that they're going to have their own fleet of vehicles funded for their own now, in many cases, employees. Yeah, and Arrival's also building stuff like the, the U.S. Postal Service, or maybe it's the United Parcel Service, one of the two USPSs, one of those two companies. <laughs> mood. That's actually okay, such a I mood. I USPS and UPS mixed <laughs> up. Completely agree. Cannot agree more. Who decided to name UPS UPS when we already had USPS? That's just designed to trip up people who are podcasting. They should have seen that coming. <laughs> but by designing specific EVs for specific use cases, be it UPS, be it Uber, they're doing what, you know almost like custom cars. I love that idea. And also, they don't want to build these in the traditional manner, which is why Arrival, to me, is cool, not just for one reason, but several. They want to use, like, modular micro factories. And I don't even really know what that means, but the sci-fi nerd in me gets really excited when people start saying, like, micro factories. I'm like, ooh, cool. What's that? 
And so I, I'm hoping that this partnership brings them more market credibility, maybe more capital and so forth, and lets them actually really pursue this vision. I think what's interesting here is, you know, in the car industry, in particular auto industry, you always had to focus on the general consumer, right? Every car looks similar because ultimately there's this blob of consumers and anything that's like unique, you know, there are a couple of cars that are unique. You know, the Hummer is unique. You know, I guess a Ferrari is like unique at an expensive price point. Like there's a couple of these out there, but the reality is there are all sedans, crossovers, SUVs, et cetera. There's a couple of big classes. As you get to this more demand driven by corporations who have large fleets that they can buy, suddenly you can do custom. You know, Uber could potentially buy hundreds of thousands of vehicles in one shot. And that means that you can actually reinvent the car from scratch. You can actually rebuild it. You have the scale to have an engineering team go in and go, like, let's figure it out. Now, there's a little bit of regulation because cars have to go through a lot of crash safety testing and all this sort of stuff. So there is like a, a certain scale you have to get to. But Uber is probably one of the few companies, at least in the consumer space, that gets there. Yeah, you know you could do, though? You could put like a, like a vomit trough in the back of an Uber and drive that one around uh, parts of San Francisco that, that are more party focused. You know, I, I could see this really working out. Jokes aside, we did have both Uber and Lyft earnings this week. We're not going to go through all the numbers because there's a bajillion of them. The gist is that the companies are kind of dealing with the the tailing off of COVID in a lot of places of the world, trying to figure out where growth is, trying to deal with the new regulatory environment. Still some pretty stiff losses, though. Danny, I wasn't utterly shocked by the results, frankly. The results were okay. Obviously, you know, the quarter last year was horrendous. I think we're still going to see a lot of hard numbers. I think the big question for everyone is how quickly does Uber and Lyft jump back to their pre-pandemic levels. It seemed a little weak, but then I think with the COVID vaccines getting into place, Q2 will probably still be a mess. But once you get into Q3, that's when you start to look at it. You know, is it half? Is it 20%? Is it growing? Are people are going crazy and driving everywhere? Totally. I mean, I feel like Twitter is littered with complaints about how high Uber prices are right now. And beyond just annoying consumer stuff, like it's probably a huge supply and demand issue right now. So I think there's that bit of wiggle room and hopefully the public markets Give it that. <laughs> I tried to take an Uber the other day for the first time in 14 months, and the, the surge pricing was incredible to me. It was like 3x. I actually listened to the Uber earnings call yesterday because I'm super cool and I have lots of awesome things to do with my time. <laughs> Driver supply came up again and again and again on the call. Mm. And the company said that, it's a, that to get more driver supply, it's a combination of safety and earnings. And it seems, given the prices that are being charged, given the relatively, I, I would say, limited driver supply in certain markets, that's been solved. It's the safety bit I think you nailed. Once we have more vaccines out, then it's going to be much safer to take a ride, then more drivers, then lower prices, then huzzah. Now, please take us away. Talking about the birth of vehicles with arrival, let's talk about the birth of humans, because this week we had an IVF startup that got a, a serious amount of funding from a well-known investor. Natasha, you wrote about the company. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so a life health raised $9.5 in seed financing led by Lux Capital and a bunch of interesting founders, such as the founder of 23andMe, Intuitive Surgical, and Moss. So IVF is usually one of the last stops for people who are trying to get pregnant because it is so expensive, emotionally taxing, and just takes a lot of time with varied success. So we're seeing companies like Alife say that they can apply AI to the embryo selection process. There's a bunch of companies in the space. This one hasn't yet shown its accuracy. So that is something to note high up. But just seeing innovation in the space and, and for them, at least a hardware agnostic solution that can plug and play into clinicians. So I'm looking at the numbers here. It says it takes three to six cycles to get pregnant. You're putting in the embryos several times to try to get one to catch basically and actually yeah. have a, a baby. And each of those cycles costs between 10 and 20K. So the idea here is that with AI, you're able to select the most likely embryos to actually move forward in the pregnancy process, 
saving the number of cycles, saving costs, and therefore, you know, sort of democratizing in, in vitro fertilization for more people. Exactly. And this company still needs regulatory approval, but long term, it's, it's moonshot, if you will, is going to be using AI across all steps of the IVF journey from screening if you're a couple that should be doing it in the first place to this embryo selection to treatment options after. So we'll probably see a lot more in the fertility space in the coming months. I want to weigh in for all the young people out there. I got married a couple of years ago and we're trying to have kids now and we're kind of dealing with some very minor things in the fertility world. I think it's fair to say. So in my mind, you like stopped trying not to get pregnant and then pregnancies just shot up out of the ground. Turns out very much not the case. And also it's a terrifying space to be in because you don't know much. Everything's kind of guesswork. It's very expensive. It's time consuming. It's scary, frankly. And so, you know, I, I think we would normally kind of giggle about AI applied to embryos, but like, frankly, this is a way to actually help people better understand what's going on, feel some measure of control and also not go bankrupt in the process of trying to have kids. I'm just so vehemently in favor of this. And so, you know, I have no cynical jokes. I have just positive ups to these companies. And I hope Alife and Mojo and all these other firms do well and can pull it off because it's a weird, weird world to find yourself in. So anyways, ladies and gentlemen, uh, if you are bored at work, you should be using OKRs. And no. if you are, you can use OKRs <laughs> from work bored. Hey, yo. That's my Danny Crichton impression. <laughs> that was a vaguely better lead than the one that I was going for. Oh, what I was going to say, if you're running a baby factory at outside IVF, you have a lot of metrics and you have objectives and, and, and key results. You might need OKR software to keep the baby factory running at peak proficiency. That's what Workboard is for. You see, the problem with that, Danny, is, is that it's a headline that is six paragraphs long. And you gotta, you, gotta, you gotta be shorter than that. It doesn't even fit in the WordPress box. Let's put the OK in OKR and finally oh, start talking yes. about it. Let's yes. talk about Workboard before I'm bored at work. Okay. Oh my God. All right. Bring it a full circle. How many times have I brought up OKR startups on the oh show now? Oh my God. Like, like five? It, it is this one of the ones thing. we've already talked about or is this a new one? Which answer will let me talk about it? <laughs> It's a choose your own adventure game. <laughs> so, so okay. So, Workboard is one of the ones we talked about before. It's one of the ones that has grown very, very quickly. And critically, it tripled one year, it tripled the next year, and then it doubled, then it doubled, and it's going to double again this year. So, it is getting to the point of material scale. It's going to be IPO size in six to 24 months, depending on how big it is today. I don't actually know. It just raised a $75 million Series D led by SoftBank Group at $800 million post money valuation. And that is up from, I believe it was, oh, my memory here. Was it $230 million post money for its preceding round? So an enormous upcycle in valuation for this company. And its CEO is just so hype about her market and the way business is changing and how fast her company is growing and all this. And I'm going to bring up this company repeatedly because it has taught me a lesson about how big certain market categories are. Like I, I am shocked quarter by quarter that there are you know five or eight different OKR-focused startups that I can name, and they're all growing so quickly. That just goes to show how much space there is in the software world. And so, you know, watching Workboard raise this amount of money wasn't surprising. It's worth a little more than I thought it might be, frankly. And Danny, you know, they, they added 82 people and are going to add another 150 this year. I mean, that's got to be top decile growth of humans. They're almost competing with Tire Global for a number of growth deals in the same period of time. Ayo. Well, actually, they're hiring a person for every growth deal that Tiger does. So. <laughs> exactly. Natasha, we, we did OKRs at, at Crunchbase. Were you there when we rolled them out? I forget. I was. I was able to avoid it until I graduated college and then was immediately joining Crunchbase. I, not to sound positive about corporate planning methods, but I, I kind of like them. I think they're a reasonable way to approach planning. And so it's, it's fun to see this kind of company do well. And the reason why its CEO is so bullish on where her company sits is that a lot of companies last year had to replan and they didn't just make an annual plan and then run it through. 
they made a plan. They tore it up in March and they tore it up again in June. They tore it up again in September. And then, in, you know, in November, she's like, look, everyone realizes they have to plan more than one time a year. OKRs are four times a year. And so there's kind of a natural moment in the market for companies like hers to take this on. Now, I'm curious, how many of you have actually set OKRs at TechCrunch? I think I've had to. What? Yeah, we have an OKR planning process. Does yeah. anyone remember their objectives or key results? Okay, but I'm not, I don't run a team here. <laughs> when I ran a team, I cared about OKRs. Now, now I just avoid things. I'm getting at the employee engagement problem because my direct reports have a major, particularly the indirect reports, have a major issue of actually following their OKRs because they don't even know they exist. And that's where the opportunity, I think, for Workboard is, is not just planning, but keeping folks engaged. Danny, we're talking about this in the extra crunch stage meeting yesterday, but like when you are actually rebuilding a company for remote work, OKRs feels like the really easy check a box and do this. But I, I am really interested in the companies that are doing more than just that. Can I throw one more little detail in before we move on to our last topic? Okay, so just really, really briefly. So if you ever looked at a, a SaaS company's S1 filing, you know, their IPO document, they'll often have two line items, one for software or subscription, whatever they call it, and then one for services. And that just means humans that help customers do stuff. And most SaaS companies really kind of run their services business at a break-even basis. They don't try to make a lot of money on it, try to not lose money on their sure. human stuff, but really is designed to kind of, you know, help out, unlock things. And so I asked uh, Workboard, I'm like, look, you guys have services. Is that material? Does it matter? The CEO told me two things. She said, look, one, our customers want it because OKRs are hard to get right and they want some coaching and some tips and tricks and best practices. Danny could use some of this. That way his indirect reports like myself know we have OKRs, period. Sorry. <laughs> Danny, by the way, I, he's such a good boss, I didn't even know I worked for him. That's how good a boss he is. <laughs> and the other thing the CEO of Workboard told me was that there is a direct link between the services part of her business and the product org. And so what she has built is a way to not only not lose money on services while unlocking revenue from customers that want help, but also to recycle the feedback from that group right into the product setup of her company. So it's probably a pretty quick learning cycle. Anyways, we're going to put that to the side and we're going to talk about something that's a little bit more difficult. So Natasha, please give everyone a bit of a warning. Yes. So just a trigger warning here, we're going to be talking about sexual assault and a startup that is trying to add some clarity and hopefully responsibility and ownership to the survivor experience. So if you are not interested in listening, feel free to stop the podcast here. Thank you for hanging out with us and we'll be back Monday. Otherwise, stick with us because we just have one last section here to talk about a new startup, Lita Health. All right. So Lita Health is introducing a at-home evidence collecting kit for sexual assault survivors. It was co-founded by Madison Campbell, a survivor herself, and Lizel Vadia. The best way to describe it is it's a box that comes with plastic bags, swabs, and instructions all labeled with QR codes and is using, it's an Ethereum-powered mobile app. It's a startup that's touching on a topic I don't think we talk about on the podcast far enough, even on our site, not intentionally, but just because we so rarely see tech entering this world. So it stood out to me this week as a company we definitely should talk about. I think it's super interesting to see the combination of technologies here. You know, obviously a lot of legal challenges. If you've ever been through the court system, chain of custody is the most single, most important criteria for including evidence in any, you know, criminal or even civil trial. And that's a huge question with self-administered tests. But Obviously, a huge issue, not only with folks not getting the test, obviously in the trauma post any sort of situation, a lot of folks decline to even get tested, and this might make it easier for them. So in some ways, we might get evidence we might not otherwise get. And then also, a lot of kits are never tested by the government or the police. So 
there's thousands. I mean, this has been a long issue for a decade going back for a lot of activists, but thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of kits that just are never tested for DNA evidence who who might actually solve crimes if they were tested. And the use of blockchain here, we talked about this in kind of our pre-show planning session. The idea here is that, you know, blockchains are immutable to a very high degree, you know, putting aside 51% attacks and so forth. And so if you wanted a place that wasn't just your personal iCloud, where you could put this information about yourself after your assault, you know, this is a place where it can't be taken down. It can't be changed. It is there forever. And so there is something very intriguing about that concept. Right. And as you guys kind of both alluded to, the kit alone cannot and has not, as we've seen through so many examples, result in a conviction. But just seeing a tool in general being invested in is what one of the attorneys in the story we have on TechCrunch said is something exciting. But one bit that I did want to address, it's planning on being a B2B company, going through universities, corporations, the military, and having those providers pay for the kit. And so you're not seeing a survivor have to pay for it out of their pocket and, and maybe be a predatory kind of sell, but more so going with organizations that have an incentive to keep their people safe and providing it in that way. And if we think about the military as one example of a possible customer base for this company, we are seeing a, a change in the wind over there. This week, a top U.S. general dropped his opposition to changes in how the military prosecutes and investigates sexual assault, for example. And so I think this company fits into a, uh, a broader societal shift more towards care and believing survivors. And yeah. uh, I, I don't know, you know if this is going to be the company that gets it right, but they have a couple million dollars in capital. They're trying to use modern tech to help people in, that have been historically left behind by the system. And it's hard to be negative about a company trying to make people who have had awful experiences have a better life moving forward. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to be back on Monday morning with our usual show. Thank you for not only letting us have fun, but also talk about some more serious stuff. Natasha, Danny, a real treat. Danny, I quit. And uh, with that, we'll be back in a couple of days. Bye. (laughs)